0: Three, two, one.
1: Here we go. Hello, hello. Welcome, everyone, to episode 141 of the No Normal Show, brought to you by Revive. This is where we leave all things status quo, traditional, old school, dusty, boring behind and celebrate the new, the powerful, the innovative the future, all related to how brands can lead the way in health. I'm your co-host, Chris Bevelo, Chief Brand Officer at Revive. I'm joined, as always, by co-host Stephanie Wirwell, who is SVP of Integrated Marketing at Revive. Hello again, Stephanie.
0: Hello, and happy belated Valentine's Day and week after the big game. Lots going on.
1: We'll hit on that just a little bit. We also have Chase Kleckner back, co-host, Senior Marketing Manager, show's producer. Hello, Chase.
2: Hello, Chris. Good to be back.
1: Yes. And we are thrilled to have with us once again, Joanne Thornton, CEO at Revive. Joanne is a seasoned healthcare marketing communications executive with expertise across the marketing spectrum with more than blank years in the healthcare industry. Do you want me to say, Joanne? 24. Joanne leads the agency's- diver- <laughs> Yeah, with With a long time of experience in the healthcare industry, Joanne leads the agency's diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts and is deeply experienced in managing the client experience and helping clients navigate complex business issues. Hi, Joanne.
2: Hello, and go Bills.
1: Go Bills. Yep. I'm just going to say, I know we're not going to talk about the game, but I've heard so many takes after saying the real Super Bowl was the Chiefs and the Bills and that the real team that should have won it all was the Bills. I've heard that multiple places. So I don't know if that makes you feel better or worse.
2: Um, it doesn't make me feel great.
1: <laughs> well, I'm try'm I'm trying. I know it's probably worse than miss, you know, to miss out like that than to to not even have a chance. So fair enough. what well, we do want to start by talking about the Super Bowl and and we have teased going deep on it. We're just gonna, we're just gonna talk about ads, and we're each gonna share, Either our favorite or our most frustrating, hated ad. You can give a little more context than that. Uh, Joanne, do you want to go first with with the ad that stuck out most to you one way or the other?
2: Sure. Um, my favorite ad, because I found it the most entertaining, was the um, Alexa ad. They're reading your mind. Oh, my gosh. I think that might have been the only ad where I was like, laugh out loud the entire time. I thought it was so clever.
1: I, you know, I heard like half of that ad. That was the one with Colin Jost and um, his wife, who Scarlett Johansson, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I heard only half of what they said. Something was going on in my house, so I need to go listen to it. Stephanie and Chase, did you enjoy that one? Because I heard great things about it too.
0: I did. I thought. um It was funny. It was interesting. Although I will say, um, you know, it sits in an interesting space where many people feel like Alexa already reads their mind and they don't like it. And then on the other (laughs) hand, sometimes she can't answer your questions right. So I thought that's a that's an interesting space for them to carve out. So um, but I really enjoyed it. It was very entertaining and funny.
1: Yes, for sure. Okay, Stephanie, why don't you just go ahead with yours then?
0: Yeah. um, So mine, which I also loved and hated, I guess that's my theme here, was Coinbase's, which was the talk of LinkedIn afterwards uh, where they had the bouncing QR code. Uh, What I thought was really interesting and cool about it was it was a TV spot that drove conversions. And typically that's almost impossible to do. And so it it drove people directly to the app. Um, Their chief marketing officer wrote a blog post yesterday or today that said that they saw over 20 million hits on their landing page in one minute. So I think some people were trying to do the math and saying, let's do the conversion rate and how many people did they have sign up and how much did that yield from a customer ROI standpoint. So that's really interesting. What I don't like about it is it crashed their site and app. And that just makes me wonder about the planning that happened in advance um and ways that could have been maybe solved for
1: i mean it's just crypto all wrapped up in one little little <laughs> one minute overview you just gave there super exciting a lot of people interested in a crash like it didn't work so i think that says it all chase chase what's like the your bubble right there <laughs> that's right chase what'd you have i i thought though i don't know if, if there was a lot of great opinions on it but i thought the toyota with the keep up with the joneses was a really interesting way of talking to different generations and because it was really interesting my mom came over on monday and was like did you see uh the toyota commercial i was like mom what have you ever talked to me about commercials and she was like oh it was just i just thought it was so great so i thought it was really interesting that they (laughs) they were able to talk to different generations with that ad which i know drove a lot of uh discussion about the halftime about different generations, which I, I think you oh, won't about. get into that. Yeah. We don't <laughs> well, we won't go we there. We'll save that for another podcast. Yeah, <laughs> that was a good one. I liked it. I also like the um the Sopranos one, which was another car one. But that <laughs> yeah. my my um my thing with the Super Bowl ads is I've, you know, I've studied them forever. And the the thing that always catches me are the ads that are really good. And then you just kind of cringe when you hear who it's from. So, you, you know, like the ones that are really moving and then it's like brought to you by just pizza. And you're like, "What? that doesn't make any sense. Like the Salesforce one with Matthew McConaughey, where it's about why go to the metaverse? Why? You know, we've got am- amazing, beautiful things right here on earth. And it was uplifting and real. And then it was like by Salesforce. I just thought, well, that's just the worst place that could come from. But my most hated ad, I'm going to go with that, was Meta's ad. Because it was, you know, the poor overstuffed dog with the big eyes gets treated like bleep, the whole ad. And then he's like put out to pasture, but then somebody hangs, you know, VR goggles and he gets to go to the metaverse. And you're like, wait a second. So when we die, that's where we're going, A. And B, nobody had legs. Like nobody in the metaverse had legs. And I just thought, well, wait, he's a dog. Wouldn't he want to run around? I, I, so it just it just reinforced why I hate facebook so badly and (laughs) i did that first did not work for me at all but i don't know if you guys
2: i have to tell you chris the sopranos ad might have been my second least liked
1: Oh, Uh, i was so
2: mad when i realized it was a freaking car commercial it was like such a tease it just made me angry
1: yeah, it's just another example of like great ad. And then you're like, oh, Chevy, whatever. Yes. Um, w- you know, I don't know what it could have been for. Maybe like a new Sopranos movie or something or music. I-, I don't know. But there had to be something more appropriate to your point. Like that's again, where if it would have been by DiGiorno Pizza, it would have that would have been like the perfect <laughs> wrong answer. All right. So we could go on all day about this and maybe sometime we will, but we're not going to do that. Today's a big day. We're we're actually recording this earlier in the week. uh, And it's Tuesday the 15th, which is a big day for us because the Joe Public 2030 book is officially shipping now, uh, according to Amazon, which is, of course, the god of all products. So whatever they say goes. And it's been on pre-order up until now. So if you order it now, you can get it in just a few days, which is fantastic. Uh, And we have launched a new community on LinkedIn called the Joe Public 2030 Group. So if you go find us on LinkedIn, we'll provide a link to that as well. We'd love for you to join. We're going to be, we just started the conversation. We're going to be continuing that conversation for months and months and months. We're going to be talking about the book in depth uh, on this show and in all kinds of other ways. But that's why we wanted to have Joanne in, uh, because we thought that was a perfect way to celebrate our new our new content that's out there for everyone to finally get their hands on and read and debate and all the good things so and joanne when you and i talked uh, i thought you had a really cool take on it it was something that we hadn't really discussed yet on the show which is you know the one of the things that you took away when you read the book was the interplay between the predictions so the book Mm -hmm. has five predictions uh and you know they they we say in the book and when we talk about it that the the predictions aren't intended to fit together. They're not trying to paint some cohesive picture of 2030. They were just the five predictions that we thought were most powerful to bring forward. And in some cases, they might even sound contradictory. Uh, but I but I thought, what a great place for us to start, right? So, so talk to us a little bit about some of the things that you first thought about in terms of the predictions and whether they fit or don't fit or yeah. how they might come together.
2: Yeah, happy to. So, well, f- first, I want to say congratulations on the book actually coming out and now being distributed i know that it was a a lot um a long way a long path to get there but it's always funny whenever i read anything that is about sort of the future and predicting the future i always kind of start with like so why do we even prognosticate in the first place right like what's what's the value in it like if if you're not going to be placing your bets. And making moves to address, you know, the predictions or, or likely outcomes of the predictions, like why even do it, right? So yeah. for like hospitals and health systems who, one would argue, don't have any time to really be meaningfully thinking about these things, like let alone taking action to future-proof their organizations. But I think it's really important... And I, I wanted to mention this because um, you know one of my one of my favorite quotes of all time um, is from Good to Great, where Jim Collins quotes Jim Stockdale is saying, "You must never confuse faith that you'll prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal fracts of your current reality." And a- after reading the book, it was like, man, if hospitals and health systems don't step up to confront the most brutal facts of their current realities, they're gonna be left in the dust. And I think that was one of the, like my big takeaways. And I think the thing that I really value most about the predictions themselves is they're really grounded in facts, like yeah. in, in reality. Like, it's not like, hey, this is this is some like other world. we think this is what the world is gonna look like in 10 years and it's not tangible like the predictions themselves are tangible because they are manifesting themselves right now, um, in every part of the industry and, and in every part of our own personal lives and how we interact with the industry. So, um, I think either way, um, whether it's, you know, you talked about some of them that that may conflict with one another. So whether it's like, you know, the constricted consumer or the Copernican consumer, Either way, if hospitals and health systems aren't doing something to address these new realities, they're going to be in peril. They're going to be left in the dust. I think that was a word I used last time we talked about this, and you're like, "Oh, you have to say that." But that's really <laughs> what it kind of feels like, right? It, it feels like they're going to be they're going to be left behind. So, anyhow, um, I thought it was really interesting as I was reflecting upon. Um, the trends is sort of the intersections in particular with the Copernican consumer um, and this idea that like, we're kind of like going to have all of this technology to be always on with our health, that there's going to be all of this advancement of technology. Um, to, So, you know, we don't like, maybe there's going to be more machines that are going to be involved in diagnoses or whatever it might be. That and the, um, the very last finding, which was the disparity dystopia. It's like, so if, if we know today that there are already haves and have nots in healthcare, how much more is that going to be compounded in a reality where maybe only those people who can afford that level of technology are going to have access to the quality of care that that new technology is going to bring forth? And so I thought that that was a really interesting intersection as well as the intersection between the Copernican consumer and the idea of sort of tribalism and sect wars, right? Like, can you really have tribalism and sect wars if like we're all running our health on Apple watches and smart toilets and like all that kind of stuff? Like, how do you have sect wars around that? So. Um, I thought there was just some really interesting intersections in that regard.
1: Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Go ahead, Stephanie.
0: (laughs) We're both so excited. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a really interesting thing you bring up around the um, Copernican consumer, which is all about the always on health data. And comparing that to disparity dystopia, which is all about the the lack of health equity. So I was just recently, I mean, having you know gone read the book and and heard all about it um, from from you, Chris, and hearing the predictions. You talked about a couple podcast episodes ago, Chris, about your Abbott. Um, Freestyle Libre. That's what it's called, right? Your yes. continuous glucose monitor, which you use for diabetes tracking. Well, I went down a rabbit hole of, hey, I want continuous glucose monitoring. I don't even have diabetes. And apparently it's a whole market for people like me who are just health nerds. But guess what? It's extremely expensive. It's anywhere from $100 a month to $200 a month. And do I really need it? So there's a lot of you know threads about how folks with diabetes feel about people like me who are, or maybe even athletes, which is I'm not, but who want to track theirs. So that's an interesting example of how much will this kind, these kinds of trackers be to begin with and how, how quickly will they become affordable to all? Um, and then what does that do in terms of health for the haves versus lack of health for, um, everyone else?
1: Yeah, and you know the the obvious the obvious comparison is the Apple Watch right now. So even if you don't want to go as far as you, Stephanie, and get a glucose monitor when you when you're not suffering from diabetes, you just want to know. Um, you know the Apple Watch has just got loads of data, but an Apple Watch is not cheap. It is not cheap. Most people could not afford an Apple Watch, and <clears throat> the book paints the also the depiction of maybe at the further end of that, the advances in precision medicine. And they're they're astounding when you read about what's possible and and what they're doing with genomics. But then the flip side of that is the cost. So the book calls out, uh, there's only, I think, at the time of print, 22, uh, you know, genome focused advancements or, or medications that have been approved by the FDA. but they're they expect that to, you know, exponentially grow, but they're also expensive. So the book calls out one, That is for a group of people of which there are only a few thousand in the United States that could benefit from this that are born with a certain kind of blindness. It can actually help cure their blindness, but it's $425,000 per eye. So, you know, if you don't have insurance, I mean, you have to be a Walton or somebody Mm -hmm. to be able to afford that, you know? And so, even if that gets cut in half and half again and half again, Is that going to be available to to the masses? Probably not. And so it is, Joanne, it's interesting that you call that out because I've done a webinar now, let's say three or four times. And I would say in in most of those sessions, one of the questions that pops up is that the the kind of contrast between the carnival-like amazement from the Copernican consumer and then the hard reality of disparity dystopia. Which basically is the fifth prediction, as you alluded to, which says unless there's some kind of moonshot that we have as a country, health disparities and health inequities are going to get worse over the next decade, not better. Um, And that's why part of it is not just because the have-nots are going to have it worse, but because the haves are going to have it better. Hmm. All right. So, what's it, you also brought up constricted consumerism? That's the one we actually call out uh, in the book, and I call out when I present because that's the second one. So, you have the Copernican consumer, which sounds like amazing. Everything's brought to you. And then the second one says, except when there's a lot of money on the line, and then you're going to have a really little choice. And how does that jibe? Or how does that jibe with the funnel wars, which is about all of these new entrants? From Walmart to Apple to Amazon to Dollar General to Best Buy to you know all of these places that are offering a certain level of care, um, you're gonna have you're gonna be able to get, you know, retail healthcare from a hundred different brands, in a year, let's say or two, but your ability to actually get surgery, is where it's a different story, right?
2: Right, but but how might how might the emergence of more retail entrants allow for greater and quicker access for those folks who today might be left behind? Yeah. Right. So I think yeah. um, you know, in some respects, like in a in a constricted environment, of course, you worry like um, you worry about location, and you worry about and you certainly worry about those folks who live in you know health deserts do those do those health deserts become that much larger right um in in a constricted environment and but you know on the flip side maybe there is some value like on, on the funnel wars um prediction like with with all of the new entrants so put like Put like big technology aside or advanced technology aside, but just, you know, more retail level entrants or even, um, you know, we've seen so many entrants that it's like, oh my gosh, are they, when did they become a health company? You know, like Best Buy Health. It's like, what? That's where I go and buy my televisions and my washers and dryers. Like, how can they be a health company? Um, but you know, they're all about like, at least, you know, part of their proposition is all about like in-home monitoring, right? And, and so there is, there is a media and a technology side to that. Um, I think how much greater value or improvement can that, will that bring um, for folks who, you know, in today's environment um, aren't receiving the same level of care as, you know, the average Joe.
0: Yeah. And that's, The promise of the Walmart health of the world, applying everyday low prices to healthcare, or the CVS's of the world who um, have recently said that, you know, through the pandemic, CVS has been your health partner. And so what does that look like in the future where everyone lives so close to CVS and they're moving more digitally? So I think that's extremely exciting. I love the idea of how do the funnel wars and the new entrants actually make it so that we don't live in a constricted environment? Because to me, that's very scary, whereas consumers, we don't have choice Um, So the question then is, how does that take the influence away from the health systems, but also the health plans if Walmart succeeds, which they have not quite yet, but if they or someone like them were to succeed with something that doesn't require insurance because it's so, so low priced?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, to go back to the constricted consumer, you know, before the pandemic, when virtual care was just barely a blip you know from especially for hospitals and health systems a large part of that was payers resisting reimbursement because from their perspective it's going to be way easier for somebody to go to the doctor four times if they can do it on their phone than if they have to go in which means more cost for us so one of the barriers to more ubiquitous virtual care was was payers and so you got to wonder like I, I have an example in terms of mental health where my wife is a therapist and it's very hard as a therapist to get to get reimbursement from health insurance. Really hard, and in fact, an insurer in our state, one of the largest ones, has stopped credentialing new therapists. And you got to ask, like, how, why? Like, there's a huge mental health crisis in this country, uh, and is an example of constricted consumerism, where you know, if I'm if I'm a large insurer, I got to be saying, if we're going to address this mental health crisis, that means a lot of therapy sessions a lot of different kinds of treatments, not just therapy sessions, Uh, that's going to cost a lot. So what do we have to do to slow the roll? What do we have to do uh, to kind of restrict this or we're going to get overwhelmed by the cost? So that's where in some ways these things almost can't live without each other, even though we're talking about them in the book separately, uh, because one goes up, you got to imagine it's going to maybe drive another one as a counterbalance
2: yeah absolutely um and and i'm i'm kind of fascinated i was fascinated by the um the finding around sort of the the sect wars and the idea of tribalism right because um particularly in in both of those types of environments um but also sort of relative to the um disparity dystopia as well right like So, so are the, are they have nots then their own, their own group, their own sect? And is there, you know, what does healthcare look like for them? Um, it's, it's really kind of a fast, a fascinating thought. Although, um, I guess when you really think about it, there is, there is tribalism in pretty much every aspect of our lives, right? Yeah. I mean, why why not healthcare?
1: Yeah, why not healthcare? It's it's kind of here to your point you made at the beginning, Joanne. You know each of these predictions is grounded in things happening right now, so it's just really a question of how far do they go and how long does it take for them to get there. Uh, in some ways, the rise of health sex actually counters, you know, constricted consumerism because it would provide more choice for those people not happy with maybe the choices they perceive now uh, in terms of you know, everything from vaccines to whatever kind of treatments they may not agree with, having a clinic that fit their worldview would provide them a choice they don't have today. So interestingly, whether that's good or bad, I mean, that it just, again, shows how these things might bounce back and forth.
2: I mean, can you envision a world where they not only had their own clinics, but they had their own health plans?
1: Like- yeah. I mean, why not? I mean, a whole a whole cottage industry could crop up to serve a certain population. And you just need, you know, if it was a national plan, right. That had enough people in it. So the actual actuarials made sense. There's enough people out there to have a worldview.
0: Yeah, I can think of three examples today. Not as far as a health plan, but um, pre- previously on the show we've talked a little bit about CrossFit and their plans for a primary care offering. So that's an interesting example of a community of people with very similar, you know, philosophy and beliefs and love for for CrossFit. So it would make sense that you know if CrossFit rolled out primary care, that there would be a large group of people interested in that. Another one which I've said to you all, my my passion for is uh, Parsley Health, which is all about taking primary care and turning it into very holistic kind of medicine. Um, They recently published a book by the CEO, which I'm halfway through. And it's very interesting because she talks about functional medicine and what that means. And then, um, you know, I won't mention any specific brands here, but I think we have seen some like luxury examples of where, um, you know, things like primary care or top of funnel services can be very expensive, but yet you can get, you know, all your vitals run and genomic genetic testing and those kinds of things. And so that's sort of for the, for the haves. So it, it already exists um, in these communities. And the question is how, how are health brands thinking of which community they serve or do you serve all? Because it's really tough to serve all these days.
1: It is, but if you're a hospital health system, I mean, everyone that I've ever encountered, that's their mission. And also, from a business standpoint, you you don't get to to carve the your market in half and say I'm only going to serve the reds or the blues. If you're talking politically, you just you wouldn't survive as a as a health system as we know them today. A clinic certainly could, maybe even in a hospital. Yeah. In the right market,
0: digitization is what makes that possible, right? Because if you're local, you have to serve everyone. But if you're digital and you're national mm-hmm. or you're global, then the market is there.
1: Yeah. So this just reminds me of the the first podcast that I did on this topic. After we were done recording, um, the host said, "I'm not sure we even want to publish this podcast. We don't give people ideas." And I'm like, "I don't think the I don't think the books gonna give them any ideas they wouldn't come up with themselves uh, in terms of doing things that maybe we'd all prefer." To your point, Joanne, like politicalization and tribalism is everywhere. Why not healthcare? It's just a matter of time before somebody creates a clinic with a, a brand name on it or a person's name on it. And people flock to it. Uh, I think it's just a matter of time. So, so any last thoughts, Joanne, this, is this, we could keep going again on this forever, but.
2: You know, I, I would say like, it's anything is possible. Right. I mean, it's, it's, you know, in our lifetime, we have just to see how the world has changed. Right. Um, and and healthcare, sort of, besides like advances in technology and that kind of stuff, like the the relationship kind of still feels the same, right? Like, I mean, maybe a doctor doesn't come to your house anymore, but I would say, like in my lifetime, and I'm not telling you how old I am, but in my lifetime, um, it has it has largely stayed the same. And so I think it it can be easy to kind of get lulled into yes, all these things can be happening. But healthcare, the way that we know it, I'm still going to trust my doctor. I'm still going to ask his or her opinion and follow, you know, whatever he or she says. And, um, and maybe I'll kind of like come along with some of the digital stuff, but for the most part, it's not going to change. And I think that, um, the danger is getting lulled into thinking that, um, that it's not going to be different. 10 years from now. Or that if it is, it's going to be incrementally different. And I think the reality is, is that the pace of change, some of which the pandemic certainly accelerated in the healthcare space, but the pace of change, um, particularly in on, on the technology side, on the digital side, is for sure going to usher in a new reality for which if hospitals and systems don't um, respond, react, plan. Um, have have a vision and have a plan f- for for what they want to be. Um, it's going to be bad news.
1: Yeah, it it that's a great way to end. The, the doctor uh, Rue, who's the CEO of Geisinger, we were had the privilege of interviewing him for the book, and he he paraphrased somebody else, but he said we underestimate the level of change that we think can happen in a year, um, or we overestimate in a year and we underestimate what can happen in a decade so i think that speaks to what your your point is that that's a long time uh and we're also on the cusp of some really big things ai genomics right that are that we're just starting to see uh come to life so it's not like those things need to be invented they just need to be honed and leveraged and that's a different place so so great all right well there we go we're officially kicking off Conversation, debate, this podcast did it. Joanne, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. And Stephanie and Chase, as always, thank you.
0: Thank you.
2: Yeah, of course.
1: Thank you all for listening as well. If there's something you want us to cover, shoot us an email at at reviveagency.com. Let us know your favorite Super Bowl ads or your most hated, or like in Stephanie's case, if it's the same ones for both. Also don't forget <laughs> to check out don't forget to check out the new book which is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble and all other fine book retailers. Also follow us on LinkedIn so you can join the conversation in our Joe Public 2030 group, follow all the neat things we say, uh, and share this out, share this podcast out with all your friends, your colleagues. Until next time, don't be satisfied with the normal. Push the no normal. Thanks for joining us. And we will talk to you next week Bye. Three, two.